0: Thanks for listening to ITRIS, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. You know, YOLO... Uh, where did that come from? Back in 1993, some company that wanted to come up with some new products, they trademarked that. Uh, uh, you only live once. Uh, it didn't really go anywhere. And then about uh, 12 years ago, some rapper put it into his song, and then it was all over social media. Uh, My kids always say that I'm always kind of a day late and a dollar short. This time I'm probably three or four years short. But it used to be really, really popular on social media to just say, YOLO, you only live once. And, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure I knew exactly what it was about, so I did what you're supposed to do. I got on the internet and looked for a definition. This one comes not from Oxford English Dictionary, but the Cambridge Dictionary. I didn't know Cambridge uh, put out a dictionary. YOLO, you only live once. It's used especially on social media to mean that you should do things that are enjoyable or exciting, even if they're silly or slightly dangerous. Here's an example. YOLO, I ate the whole carton of ice cream um uh, i don't know whether that was uh stupid silly or slightly dangerous but uh uh the way i look at it it just depends on how big the carton was so uh that's what makes it but yolo okay you're trying to do things that that count you know and okay that's that's maybe not such a bad philosophy but you know some people in fact many people live to the letter of the law and it's like Okay, this is it. And, uh, you know, we know there really is another life. In fact, the way you're supposed to live this life is in preparation for that life. It's not true you only live once. Truth of the matter is you live twice. You know, uh, let me tell you, I've told you this story before, maybe even a couple times, probably 20 years ago. One of the most memorable days I've ever had in ministry. Uh, We knew two people that were on their deathbed, literally. And it was just going to be days or even hours before they died. And interestingly, about both of them, they both were all there. You know, sometimes when a person gets close to death, I mean, they're just, they're not there. These people were there. They were conscious. They, I mean, just literally... Uh, they were still there, but they were within hours of dying. So I called Vicky and, and said, hey, I'm going to go visit this person and this person. You want to come? And she was like, yeah. And so ran by the house, got her. We went to the first house. And uh, I'll tell you what, it was like walking into heaven. Just a person that that knew the Lord, had walked with the Lord. And, you know, if you've never been in that situation, what you do is you kind of get up in their face because they can't see you. So you, you get in their eyesight. And Vicki and I talked with them and prayed with them and quoted Bible verses to them and sang to them and then prayed some more with them. And I'll tell you what, in her eyes, the only way she could communicate, she was saying, man, I'm about to graduate into the greatest thing in eternity. She was going to be with Jesus. And then we left there. And I mean, literally, it wasn't 15 minutes later, we were in the exact same position with someone else. And uh, this is a person that, you know, quite frankly, never really made it public knowledge whether or not they had trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, never gave any indication of salvation, and did the same thing almost quoted the exact same Bible verses. I always like to, to quote Bible verses like John three sixteen that include the gospel, sang, you know, Amazing Grace and other songs like that. And I'll tell you what, I saw the fear of God. That person was scared to death. And you know, interestingly, that night, both of them died. Almost within minutes of each other. And I thought, you know, what is it like? You know, perhaps they went, they both went to heaven, but maybe not. Here's what we're going to do for the month of June. We're going to talk about what's life like after death. I mean, when I do a funeral, if the person's a believer, and I'm certain they're a believer, a lot of times... uh, I will include in that funeral, hey, here is what this person is experiencing. This is what their life is like. When they closed to their eyes, you know, last Tuesday, there is a life after death. There's a life after death for everybody, believer and unbeliever alike. Uh, and, and it's a conscious existence, they didn't just fall asleep and we're kind of in this la la land of, of sleeping. No, they they've got memories. They interact. They they are aware. There is there is a consciousness that that person feels the moment after they die. They're still conscious. They're just in another place, and it's eternal. It's forever. You see. This would take a long time to kind of explain, 10, 15 minutes, but the truth of the matter is the very same word that is used to describe the eternality of God is used to describe the eternality of life after death. You go to heaven eternally. You go to hell eternally. It's forever. And there's no second chances. There's no no purgatory that you go to until you, you know, kind of get beat up enough, and then you get to go. No, it's, it, it is it is appointed unto a man once to die, and then after that, the judgment, the evaluation, and then you go, and that's where you are for eternity. And perhaps the, the most important stipulation is the thing that determines where you go is your relationship with Jesus Christ? It's not your money, it's not your education, it's not how many times you get to church, it's not how involved you are in the church, it's not how much money you put in the offering baskets, not how much money you donated to some other nonprofit. It is your relationship with Jesus Christ. It is, do you have a faith based relationship with Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul summed it up as as well as it ever could be summed up. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. I mean, you recognize that you're a sinner. You needed a Savior. He died for you. He paid the penalty for your sins. It's the gospel. And your attitude towards the gospel, your disposition towards the gospel, that's what determines your destiny, your eternal destiny. Now, I'm just going to stipulate all of those because I'm kind of assuming you've got those down. You want some more information on it? I'd be glad to share it with you, direct you to to some places. But those are some things we're just going to assume. But let's move on. So what is it like for the person that hasn't trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior? They are an unbeliever. Maybe came to church, maybe grew up in church, might have had some of the the sweetest Christian parents she could have, godly grandma, godly grandpa, born in Texarkana, raised in Texarkana, probably a member of five different churches in Texarkana, but never trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior. What is life like for that person? two minutes after death, and for eternity. Sobering truth that what we're going to be looking at. Let's talk about it. Okay, you go to the Bible, and this is, I'm just summarizing a whole bunch of stuff and trying to make it simplified, but you go to the Bible, and you see these words. In the Old Testament, you hear about Sheol. And then in the New Testament, you hear about Hades, and then, of course, we know that there's a hell, you know, because it talks about that sprinkled all throughout, and particularly at the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. What's Shia? what's hell, or what's Hades, and what's hell? Okay, here's the deal, and and we're, you know, again, I'm just kind of piecing together a whole bunch of stuff, but this is what it is. When a person, an unbeliever, dies, whether it was before Jesus or since Jesus, before the cross of Christ or since the cross of Christ, when a person dies, they go to a place that the Old Testament, because it was written in Hebrew, called Sheo. In the New Testament, we call it the Greek word Hades, one and the same. And it is a place of, that we'll, we'll see what it's like here in a little bit, but that's where that person goes. And it's a horrible place, just to tell you. Awful, tormenting, terrible place. But then, as the book of Revelation makes clear, at the end of time, Revelation 20, there is what's called the great white throne judgment. And those who were in Sheol or hell, or, or Hades, excuse me, They are judged, and if their name is not found written in the book of life, they are cast into hell, which is described as a lot of different things. But it's essentially the same kind of existence as they've already had. It's like God, the great judge, he knows that that person is an unbeliever. That person is not forgiven. That person has not come to him on his terms god's terms and so they go to sheol they go to hell or hades but ultimately they will be sent to hell which is just kind of more of the same so that that that's kind of the simple version of it so so the place they go now is kind of like what you could call the present hell but then ultimately they will be sent to the real hell. But if you were to ask them or you study the Bible, it ain't much difference between the present hell and the ultimate hell. So what is that like? What is it like in Sheol slash Hades? What will it be like in hell? Let me just give you some uh, descriptions that are in the Bible. Now, I've already said, it's it's it's, it's conscious. It, 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 is, it is a real experience. It is not just something that, you know, is like this bad nightmare. I mean, it is a conscious existence. Interestingly, now you could probably name off a few of these if you sat and uh, thought about it, because you've heard so much preaching just through the years whether you've heard a sermon specifically on hell or not one of the things that probably comes to mind most is it is a place of burning uh, what what how does revelation 20 describe it it is a lake of fire i mean in matthew 13 mark 9 you write those passages down and took the time to go look at them It says, they are in the flames. You know, you got in a burn lately, touched something that was a little too hot, maybe a pan, something on your grill. Sometimes when we're grilling, I like to take a little bite of something and and it burns the inside of my gums. Painful. I mean, that's what hell is described as. It is like swimming in a lake of fire. That's tormenting. Let me give you another one. Remember how it says in Revelation 20 that Satan is cast into a bottomless pit. He's cast into hell. A bottomless pit. What is that? It is a sense of falling. Now, I've never really been much of a risk taker. You know, I will never jump out of a plane. If I if I get th- out of a plane, it's because it's been hijacked or it's going down or someone pushed. I mean, I'm just saying I ain't going to do that regular, uh, voluntarily at all because I hate that feeling. Some people love it. Some people love it for those two or three minutes, maybe, that it takes before you. Open the chute, and then you get to jump. I remember when I was a youth pastor in uh, Dallas. Boy, this will tell you how far things have come. Six Flags opened their new roller coaster. I'm not even sure the thing still exists. They probably dismantled it because they needed the land for something better. But they opened up Judge Roy Scream. Anyone that's been to... Is it still there? Good. There is a roller coaster. I could do it. Six Flags. Okay. Okay. The thing that was so cool and the big selling point about Judge Roy Scream is that Judge Roy Scream, at least on the first big hump, maybe the second big hump as well, they had figured out how to simulate almost that bottomless, falling motion. And you went and did it, and it's like, you know, for a half a second, you felt that free fall. I mean, I loved it. I don't love the other stuff because they've gotten too far along. But can you imagine that for eternity? There's burning. It's bottomless. I'm a preacher. Got to have another bee. It's banishment. Now, I haven't asked you to take your Bibles yet, but I want you to do, do look at this verse. Look at Matthew twenty-two thirteen with me. This is kind of interesting. I I learned this in preparation for this sermon. I'd never seen this before, even though I've read the Bible a bunch and studied it a bunch and heard hell talked about a bunch, but I'd never thought about this before. And I was really glad that then when I went and read what other people said, they already knew it too. And I thought, okay, good. I found something that really is true and it's not just me. Look at verse 13, Revelation tw- or, uh, Matthew 22, verse 13. Then the king, this is a parable that Jesus is telling, but it's likening, you know, to eternal punishment and etern- eternal reward. At the end of the story, here's what the king says to those that were the bad guys. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, And cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We'll get to the weeping and gnashing of teeth in the next B. But think, look at that, right there in the middle of it. They are cast out into outer darkness. We could go to a few other passages of scripture and it has that same concept you know what hell is a lonely place there's no community in hell you'll hear these people that are kind of sarcastic and you know fools To be honest you know i don't want to go to heaven it's just one big church service i don't like organ music and i ain't going to go up there with those staunchy people anyway you know I want to go to hell where I can drink my beer and have my fun and just be me and my friends. Well, I don't know whether you get to drink beer in hell. I don't, I'm don't. i pretty sure you don't, but I know you ain't going to be with your friends. Your friends might be there, but you're going to be alone. I think that's the concept that this passage and other passages are. Can you imagine being totally alone? I mean... This is spiritual death that we're describing here. It's the theological thing that's going on here. Is these people are spiritually dead and they are experiencing eternal spiritual death. It is complete and total separation from God. They are alone. You know, what's, what's the worst punishment that we as human beings can met out to someone other than just taking their life? It's solitary confinement. In fact, it's so bad we won't put a person in solitary confinement for more than 23 hours. We'd never do it to them for seven days. They wouldn't survive. I mean, all alone, dark, but you're conscious. That's what hell's going to be like. That's what Sheol's like now. Hades is like now. Outer darkness. There's burning, there's bottomless, it's banishment. Before we get to this next B, I want you to take your Bible and turn with me. We're going we're to go and look at a parable that Jesus told. Luke 16. Now, a little bit of a discussion about this one. Some people are saying, you know, you can learn an awful lot about heaven and hell from this passage. And I agree with them. Some people say, no, no, no. Uh, let me just give you the... Every parable Jesus told was realistic. He never talked about Martians or spacecraft or, or, you know, some, you know, talking zebra. I mean, they were realistic stories. It was a husband and wife. It was a father and two sons. It was, you know, a farmer and casting his seed out and what kind of plants grew and all that stuff. It was just right out of everyday life. So, why in the world would this parable that talks about Abraham's bosom and all that stuff talks about the afterlife, life after this life, why would Jesus have made up some fanciful existence that isn't close to reality? I I think what Jesus is describing here in his parable is realistic, and for that matter, It actually may not even be a parable because there's something really unusual about this parable, this story. Uh, This is the only time where in a parable, Jesus actually uses someone's real name, Lazarus. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I mean, he never tells us what the prodigal son's name was. Let me tell you about Mike and Jimmy. No, he doesn't. We never find out what the father's name is. We never find out, you know, the wife that lost one of her pieces of jewelry and she cleaned the house like crazy trying to find the piece of jewelry. We never found out that her name was Sarah or Susan or something else. Why in the world in this parable alone did Jesus say, Lazarus? It's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, you remember that rich guy that died? And you remember how outside of his house, there was that poor guy, everybody knew his name. Oh, there's Lazarus. Lazarus always begging for money, you know? Well, let me just tell you what happened when Lazarus and Rich Man died and met up. I, I think Jesus might not just be describing the afterlife very realistically. I think he might even be, because he's omniscient and he knows what really goes on, he's describing. Maybe a sto- situation that actually happened. It's just something to think about. Look at verse nineteen. This is Jesus talking. Now there was a rich man, and he had habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, linen not linen, uh, in fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And then there was also a poor man named Mount Lazarus, who was laid at his gate. He was covered with sore and longing to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table besides even the dogs were coming and licking him licking his little sores now it came about that the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to abram's bosom and i think it's describing where righteous people went after death before the cross we'll talk about this next sunday And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, this guy is in Hades. If this was written in Hebrew, it would have said, And in Sheol, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. There's the burning. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, bad things. But now he's being comforted here. But you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's this great chasm. No one can cross over it. Verse 27, then, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house and tell my five brothers. And Abraham says, hey, they've had plenty of warning." They've got the prophets, they won't listen to him, and so forth. You know, I think what Jesus is describing there is pretty accurate to what Hades really is like. It's got the elements of what hell is definitely going to be like it's the burning, it's the banishment. No indication of the bottomless stuff. But it's certainly a place of horror. As we've already emphasized, the guy's conscious. he's He remembers. He knows. So all this leads to, to just a little bit more. I mean, just a few more bees here. It's bitter. It's biting. There's regret. Hell is a horrible place. And that is where a person that has not trusted in Jesus Christ is going to go. One moment after death, the unbeliever is experiencing this kind of stuff. It is a place of of punishment. It's a place of torment. It's kind of interesting. uh, As I was reading different... uh, theologians and and their understanding of all of this. It's like one guy said, you know, if we really understood what hell is really like, we would never cavalierly say that someone ought to just go to hell. You know, you think about the way some people curse. Well, that's a hell of this or that's a hell of that. No, it wasn't. might have been tough might have been hard, but nothing compares to hell. That's why I titled the sermon, Hell is Worse Than Hell. Our concept of hell, that's a bad day. That's someone spilling our coffee when we're out to breakfast. Someone not fixing our omelet the way we think it should be. By the way, on Thursday mornings, the eggs are wonderful. The coffee's great. You ought to come, okay? Just a little... Uh, humor here for now but the truth of the matter is hell is horrible listen to listen to how a couple of theologians that i really respect just summarize it and boy this you know just the average person is like whoa i knew you guys were fighting fundamentalists but this is beyond the pale here listen to what wayne grudem says wayne grudem's a, a, a theologian still alive Probably one of the most respected theologians out there. He just narrows it down to about 12 words Hell is a place of eternal, conscious punishment for the wicked. How do you define a wicked person? A person who has not trusted in Jesus Christ as personal savior. Not so well known, but he is actually a professor that I had at Dallas Seminary, great guy. Uh, Dr. Robert Leitner. Hell is a place of eternal torment for the devil, his angels, and those who reject God and his son's sacrifice for sin. It is a place of eternal torment. All those things we put on the screen there, this is kind of the tip of the iceberg. That's what hell is like. That person you know that has not trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior. That is their destiny. They're to die today. That's what they will begin to experience. Not just temporarily, but for eternity. So what do you do with that? You know, as you know, I always like to at the end just say, okay, so what? What difference does that make? I'm just going to go ahead and put them all up there and talk about them one at a time. You know what? The concept of hell, the reality of hell, ought to help us forgive in incredible ways. You know, many times the reason I struggle to forgive someone is I think they have to pay. I mean, I'm just not going to let them off scot-free. I want to see some blood. I want to see some pain. I want to see some hurt. I'd like to see a few tears. I want them to grovel. You know, can you get on the floor back there and crawl to me, confess everything, and then I'll think about it, about forgiving you? You know what? God's justice is not thwarted. I mean, hell is essentially God's justice. And if anything, we look at it and it's like, enough already. I mean, seriously, the guy only killed 12 people and you're going to make him burn and swim in a lake of fire forever? I mean, there isn't anything we could imagine that deserves that. But from a God's holy perspective, that's what it means to fall short of the glory of God. Uh, Justice will be served when when in Revel in Romans twelve nineteen it says vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus says the Lord. Uh, the community group down there at nine thirty, Brian's group, we talked about the book of Nahum. This is what your kids are going to be talking about, probably not as explicitly, but God's justice, his vengeance, people will pay for their sins. And and that concept should at least liberate us to recognize that that sin will be paid for, and if the person's a believer, that sin has been paid for in the death of Jesus Christ, because Jesus experienced spiritual death. All those things that Jesus Christ that we put up there, that's what the spiritual death was that Jesus Christ was experiencing. That sin is paid for. Sins will be paid for. We're not the judge. You know, maybe there's a person that you're struggling to forgive. Maybe you ought to analyze it. Are you you just kind of waiting for some justice? The justice will be served. And if that's one of your hang-ups in forgiving that person and setting that offense aside, perhaps this will help you. You know another thing I put the word rest up there. Maybe you could put a slash and put trust or relax or whatever. I think sometimes we're so stirred up because we see these unbelievers just racing away and you know particularly now, you know their country, it's like it's like man, they're just ruining the place. You know this month especially, you know, all this stuff that's going on and we're like You know, I'm sick of this and whatever. God says, I've got it. I am slow to anger. It's not on you to address sin. It's not on me to address sin. You know what's on me and on you? It's that last one. It is to care enough to tell sinners that there is someone that died for them that saved them, that paid the penalty for their sin. And the truth of the matter is, it is, in some ways, I think sometimes we as believers, we're, we're, we're missing the boat because we're so angry about all this stuff. And we don't step back and recognize that God says, I've got it. If anything, there needs to be some compassion and some commitment and some gospel sharing to tell people about the love of Jesus Christ who came and died for them, who died for their sins, just like He died for your sins, so that you don't have to go to this place that we've just been describing where you just wish someone would get a drop of water and stick it on your tongue. That place of outer banishment outer darkness i think sometimes we as christians we we're we're missing the mark and we're so upset about certain things and in reality what we need to be upset is that people may not know the gospel and have had a legitimate presentation the fact that the son of god came to die to seek and save the lost Let me ask you, do you know many unbelievers? You do. I know you do. Some of you are married to unbelievers. Some of you are raising unbelievers. Some of you were raised by unbelievers. You work regularly with unbelievers. According to the Bible, which we know is the Word of God, a moment after after death, This is their experience. I mean, if anything, what God needs to do with us is quicken our hearts so that there is a sensitivity to do, to say, I want that person to meet the Savior who saved me. Do you know someone like that? I bet you do. Let's pray. I'm just going to give you a moment right here. Just think of a couple of unbelievers that you know. And ask God to save them. Ask God to use you, or at least volunteer to be used any way he wants, to use you to save them. Just talk to the Lord about them. express your willingness to be used. You know, I've assumed that everyone here has trusted Jesus Christ, but that's that's probably not the case. Let me just talk to you right now. Do you know Where you're going after you die? Are you trusting in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. Are you trusting in Him? Do you recognize that you're a sinner and He is your Savior? He died in your place. He is your substitute. Sins will be paid for. That's a given. We have a holy God. The question is, will you pay for him in hell? Or will you claim the payment that Jesus Christ has already made when he died on the cross of Calvary? If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ in that way, with that information, I want to urge you to trust Jesus Christ, whom to know brings eternal life in heaven. Father, I pray that today if there is someone here that has not trusted Christ I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would not let them rest until they have trusted him. And Father, we who have trusted, I pray, Father, there would would be a deep concern in our heart that would translate into some action and some words so that we might be used as you want to bring that person to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, when we see unbelievers, I pray we would grieve. I pray instead of being so angry at their sin, we feel some compassion and want to help them meet the one who died for their sins. Father, I pray that uh, as a result of this time looking at the truth of your word, I pray people would get saved and I pray, Father, we would become more like Jesus Christ because we've seen the other side of what it means and what it's like for those that haven't met Christ. For it's in his name we pray.